brothers and sisters, we'll be paying attention to verses 5 and 6 of chapter 14, which I'll read for you right now. One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains uh, in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. That's what we'll be considering. And let me ask you as a question to begin with, what is, what is the greatest, the chief Christian virtue? What is the most important virtue a Christian can have? And of course the answer is love. We can go to 1 Corinthians 13 and think, well, there's faith. How important is faith in the Christian life? It's hard to overstate that. <laughs> How important is hope in the Christian life? Well, I tell you, that's what keeps us going. That's the, almost the gas in the tank. Without hope, we, we don't have much. But Paul says those pale into insignificance, especially in the grand scheme of redemption, because at a certain point, Christian, check it out, you won't need faith. At least not in the same justifying way now. I'm sure we'll still believe God and take Him at His word and all through eternity. But not in the sense of being saved out of darkness and, and fleeing from the, the, from the wrath of God and the shame of our own sin. That'll all be wiped away. Faith won't be necessary anymore. Hope will be something we're living in the midst of. And I'm not sure how hope will work in eternity either because it seems there's a future there. It's just a future that keeps being amazing and awesome and just keeps getting better. So I think there's maybe a little nudge of hope there. But what will not disappear, in fact, what will be multiplied and magnified is love. That's where we're going. That's the Christian hope. And so the greatest Christian virtue is love. And as we look at this passage, not just the huge one I just read, but even including farther back, we see the main issue here is love. Loving your neighbor. Loving the Christian who sits next to you. Loving the Christian down the pew if we had pews or chairs or over there at the tables. Um, loving the ones that kind of irritate you. Loving the ones that rub you the wrong way. Purposing to love the body and serve one another and build up the body of Christ for the sake of Christ Jesus because he has redeemed us and so he's called us to love one another. One of the great one of the great passages here in the, the, what we just read or just before is the Lord is able to make him stand. They're in the beginning of the chapter here. Okay, we're, we're talking about... Um, each of us is a servant, a slave to Christ. And the idea is, well, quit judging one another like you're the master and you have a slave. The slave is Christ, and Christ will judge him. And we don't, we don't need to judge one another, particularly in terms of things that are indifferent. Okay, we do need to have judgment and so on in terms of sin and righteousness. That's part of the church, and there's plenty of that, and that has to go on, not only in the church, but in our individual lives, uh, where judgments are made, and not to be judgmental, uh, for we know that the same judgment we render out will be turned on us. But this isn't, what we're talking about here is not an issue of sin. Right? This isn't like adultery in the church, like in, say, First uh, Corinthians and, and things like that, or in the church of Corinth. Right? That's a sin that has to be dealt with, and Paul says, deal with it, and turn them out. Right? There's discipline in the church for that, that, that kind of sin. This isn't that. This is, and it's strange maybe as it seems to us, eating meat and keeping certain days and not other days. And these are really issues that are indifferent, as Paul says, and the word for that is adiophora, that's the plural, uh, things indifferent, that's a theological word. Uh, it means there's a list, and the question is what's on the list uh, of things adiophora, that is things that are 
indifferent of themselves. It doesn't matter if you do or you don't of itself, but it might matter if you do or you don't relative to other things, other people and other situations. Right? So the thing in itself is fine. That's what Paul says here in this passage. I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing's unclean of itself. How is that? Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God's made all of this. Now, we pervert it, we twist it, we're sinners, you bet. But nothing's unclean of itself. Um, But some lack the faith to understand that. Don't quite have that together. And I think that's the weaker brother in this this passage that doesn't quite have dialed in the freedom he has in Christ Jesus. What kind of freedom there is to do or not do. And they're bound in by different traditions or conscience and things like that. More on that as we go. The point is this. The Lord is able to make... That brother, who you're concerned about, either because you think he's messing around too much in his freedoms and he's not reserved enough, uh, or you think he's kind of a fuddy-duddy and can't break out of his little traditional mold and see the freedom we have in Christ, you know, these kind of going back and forth, the Lord's able to make him stand. Okay? Each slave stands and falls before Christ Jesus, and Christ is able to make that one stand that you're worried about, that you're concerned with. And it's not an issue of sin, because, again, there's, there's some sin, there's obligations for the Christian to address that and so on. These are matters indifferent. These are matters where sin is not the issue, at least in the thing itself, though it might come into issues of sin as it comes into community in the Christian, in the Christian church. The Lord is able to make them stand, and under God's law, we have freedom as Christians. Under the law of God, let me state it as clearly as I can, we're never free to break the law of God. There's no Christian freedom to disobey God. Okay? That's, that's, not on the, that's not on the table. What we are free to do is within the confines of God's law to do what we want. And some people want to be more reserved. Other people want to be more out there. And, okay, there's, there's room in the law of God for all of that. And Christian, we've been given the freedom in Christ. That's kind of one of the main things here we were discussing, I think, last week. With meat eating is that constriction of the old covenant and the laws of the old covenant. And even the stoicheia, the, the word I use, that these elementary principles or spirits that kind of operate in the world, where we get the, all that's constraining. But Christ came that we should have freedom from all of that. Right? To give us freedom as the sons of God, here even by faith now, but uh, by sight, Christian, later on. And that freedom is meant to love one another. We're given that freedom in order to use it to build up the church of Jesus Christ, to build up others, not just to glory in our own freedom and do whatever we want, and I don't care about what you think, but to glory in the freedom and be ready to give it up readily and joyfully when needs be, when the situation around us in the church or beyond requires that of us. More on that on that later. The thing we focus in on here this morning is holy days. Holy days, which you can put together and say holidays. If you do that or not. Anyway, so we have holy days, uh, which we might say, okay, as a holiday is a day off, oftentimes. We, the day that we don't work. And just as a note, there are many Sabbath days all through the Scriptures. We think of the weekly Sabbath. I'm going I'm to bring this back next week, Lord willing, and do a sermon on the Sabbath and what we're talking about here. This thing goes together because it seems, especially if you grab from, from Colossians, that, oh, the Sabbath is done, right? There's no Sabbath in the New Covenant. I don't think that's true. I think that there is Sabbath in the New Covenant. It's called the Lord's Day. Uh, it's not the same as it was under the Old Covenant. It's a New Covenant Sabbath Day. Uh, we'll get to that word one next week. But right now I want to just get in view, and it should take just a minute or two to kind of get in view, some of the paths that are coming together here in this 
what I think is a terse and, in certain ways, unclear text, which is the very beginning here of verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. What days is he talking about? He didn't specify. He doesn't specify the Jewish calendar or the Old Covenant calendar with its feast days. And as I mentioned, many Sabbaths. Okay, almost every, every celebration has a Sabbath included in it where it's a, it's a day of, of rest. You're not to do your work. It's a day of holy convocation, things like this. There are many, many Sabbaths tied in with the Jewish calendar. That could, those could be the days. Right? Just the, the, the very pilgrim feasts themselves. Right? Going to Jerusalem and all those feast days and so on. So the Jewish calendar could be in view. Um, and we have with that one at least a divinely revealed calendar. Uh, you know, God gave this, this, uh, this calendar and, and structure of time, uh, Sabbaths and celebrations and so on, fast days and feast days, um, in his word. So we have at least that. There's got to be some wisdom to draw out of those things and to see them connected to Christ. Yet at the same time, I think they could be included here where Paul says, one day esteem uh, more than another, and some people esteem all days the same. It could be having to do with the Jewish calendar and that revealed um, days off and, and, and so on from the Old Testament. But not every Christian, in the case of our, our time now, but certainly then as well, not every Christian came from a Jewish background. And it's, just, it's worth noting that, that you know, Christianity is very Jewish <laughs> until it's not. And it doesn't take very long for it not to be very Jewish. Uh, it takes about a generation or two at the early church before the Gentiles just entirely overwhelm the Jews in, in a number of the church. And then the thing kind of changes a little complexion there, which I think is God's purpose in moving it out into the world. But anyway, uh, not every Christian in the early church was a Jew, or was even particularly familiar with the Jewish holidays or the Jewish calendar, or even the Old Testament for that matter. Many of them were saved out of what? Oh, entire different religious systems and cultural systems we call paganism, right? The, the worship of the other gods, the ancient gods and so on, that Christianity finally came around and shut down, um, at least in the West. But they come out of paganism. They come out of other traditions that have other feasts to other gods and so on, right? You can just think about that even in maybe our own context. Um, and, you know, you can imagine a, a little more uptight, tight-laced Jewish believer really being upset at a, another Christian who's a Gentile who's celebrating a pagan holiday. You can imagine that? You guys know any Christians that get kind of uppity about Halloween? You ever found those guys? Um, or, or Christmas or, or other things, right? They'll say, oh, this is pagan in its origins and this and that. You want to make war against the holiday? That could be included here. Is that, is that the day? Or are those the days that, uh, that Paul's talking about? Could be. Could be Jewish. Could be pagan. Could also be Christian. What do I mean by that? Well, from the beginning, as far as we can tell, which is, say, it's written in the D.K., which is a first century, end of the first century Christian document, that Christians routinely, routinely fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays. Wednesdays and Fridays. And they had reasons built into that. But two days a week, and you can see that with the, the Pharisee that prays thus by himself, you know, I fast twice a week. Well, Christians carried on that tradition in the Christian church, in the New Covenant. Now, is it necessary that you fast on Wednesday and Friday? Well, the Church of Rome might tell you something about uh, Friday and meat and things like that, right? Binding the conscience and practice of people. Paul here says, it's, it's, it's adiaphora. It's a thing indifferent. You can fast on Wednesday and Friday, or you cannot fast on Wednesday and Friday. That would be the application, I think, to the Christian days. So are they Jewish days we're talking about? Are they pagan days we're talking about? Are they Christian days that we're talking about? And I think the answer is, yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what we're talking about. All that stuff and more. 
right? And Paul said, like I said, Paul says it so tersely, <laughs> so 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 tightly. Yet he, it's open to all of what's there. I'll read it again. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. So there are. It's not just esteem like, hey, I really like Fridays. You know, of all the days of the week, clearly Wednesday's junk and Monday's junk, but Friday's great, you know, or something like that. It's not that kind of esteem like you like particular days. They're set aside for religious purposes. They're set aside for worship and for rest and for religious spiritual exercises and so on. And Paul says, you can do it or you cannot do it. You have freedom as a Christian to engage in those things or not to engage in those things. And of course, there's a, well, there are, there are a number of things to think about as you're, as you're free to engage or not engage in those things. Um, one of those is what I'll call the Galatians test. For reading the book of Galatians, if you've read that thing and kind of keep it together, one of I think what the test there is is Paul says, if your notion of being accepted before God is Christ plus anything, then you got it wrong. You have a different gospel, right? Our, our, our acceptance before God is in Christ Jesus and in Him alone. He is our righteousness. It's not that plus circumcision, or that plus law keeping, or that plus baptism, or that plus your good works you did on Tuesday, or anything else. It's Christ plus nothing equals acceptance before God. Being received by God, as Paul puts it here, being welcomed by God. That's the Galatians test. That's important for us as we think through Christian liberties and how Christians kind of mess these things up because oftentimes we do add in our traditions. We add certain things that must occur or we want to see occur for someone to be a Christian. And again, if it's an issue of sin, okay. We need to address the sins. But if it's an issue of either indifference or personal taste and things like that, we need to be humble. We need to leave the other servant to be judged by his Lord and his Master. Now, one thing, and I'll just mention this before moving on, it is a Christian commitment all the way back that these are the days of the Lord. Right? Since his resurrection, he reigns. And he reigns over all the kings of earth. And he's building his kingdom. And the Christians have looked back at that from the resurrection and say, well, that's now the year of our Lord. Right? So we look back at history and mark it by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and say, okay, with his resurrection and ascension, he is the king of kings. He rules over all the nations. He's building his kingdom. It is the year of our Lord. And that's the commitment that we need to have. This is all Christ's. He runs and rules over all this, and he's building his kingdom right now. With us. He's building his kingdom. He does it generation by generation. These are the years of Christ. The years of our Lord. Not the years of the old covenant or the years under the darkness or the shadows. But the sun has come. We know the Lord Jesus Christ and that he rules. Now, the thing that Paul says here in verse 5, right at the end, is really remarkable. Because we would think, maybe Paul would say, hey listen, I'm going to tell you the right way to go. You guys just fall in line. Okay, I'll tell you what piece you should hit. I'll give you the list. Just do it and be quiet. We're good. Okay? Because that's what we do as parents, right? Something comes up and they're fighting over this. Okay, listen, I'm going to make up rules. Here are the rules or something like that. And sometimes that's fine. Here's what Paul says. Let each one be convinced in his own mind. Okay? When it comes to the freedoms we have uh, for food and drink or for which days to keep holy and how we do this sort of thing. Paul says, let each one be convinced in his own mind. Now, what does that mean? 
does that mean, well, I was raised to, and then you proceed to tell them your mind? Is that how you are convinced in your own mind because of the traditions that you're familiar with, that you've experienced? Well, I tell you, it's hard to shake that off. It's part of, like, kind of who we are, the traditions and things we've received. But we got to, as Christians, be able to stand up apart from that and say, okay, what does the Word of God say about this? Not just how was I raised, not just what did my parents do, not just whatever, what ecclesiastical tradition we come from, Presbyterians do it this way, well, Methodists do it this way. Okay, that's fine, but we got to get past that, because you're not going to be convinced in your own mind just because it's your personal tradition. Actually, you need to shed that in order to look at the Word of God to test it, to see if that personal tradition is faithful or not, or if it's anything indifferent and you're free to engage or not engage. So one thing is, for, as far as being convinced in our own minds is we need to look for convincing in the right place. We need to train our consciences. Christian, how do you train your conscience? Doesn't it just like exist out in there somewhere, messing around with you, telling you what you've done wrong, and maybe occasionally telling you what you've done right, usually telling you what you've done wrong? Um, is, is it functioning of the conscience? Can that be trained? Or is it just kind of exist in there? It must be trained. We must train our minds to think faithfully according to the Word of God. What God says is right is right. What God says is wrong is wrong. I don't know if I feel that way. I don't know that it matters. You think it matters, or I think it matters when I feel weird and God says that. But it's what God has revealed. We're to train ourselves according to the Word of God. We're to train our consciences, again, not because of our traditions or because this has come down to us, but because this is what God has said. God has revealed this to us in his word. Therefore, we're going to do this or not do this, or we're free to do this or not do this because of the word of God, not because of our own background and tradition. Another thing that comes up in this amazing little text, let each one be fully convinced in his own mind, is this. I'll put it in uh, gender terms. Well, maybe I'll put it in Pauline terms. You've got to gird up the loins of your mind to do this work. To be convinced in your own mind isn't be, I don't really know anything, but I sure am convinced. Yeah, get out. Nothing to say there. Everyone's like that. We all have opinions and think things. Nobody cares. That's not the issue here. To be convinced in your own mind means you've studied the Scripture. And not just in your own closet where no one can touch you, but among the people of God. Where God's people can teach and help you because God's given teachers to his church because we need them. A lot of people think, really, they can sit in their own prayer closet and have one-on-one time with God, and that's it. That's the height. That's all they really need, and we need that. We absolutely need that private time with the Lord. But let's not think that as we examine the Scriptures in the privacy of our own bedroom, that we have all of the truth that we need and can see it all. We can't. We need to read the Scripture and have iron sharpen iron within the context of the people of God as well. We need to think these things out. We have an, an, an impressive ability to be lazy when it comes to thinking things out, working them out. We just kind of like fall on the position that's most convenient, or fall on the position that we've heard, or fall on the, and this, this goes for theology or philosophy or politics or whatever else. All this stuff takes work to think out, doesn't it? It's exhausting. You can't chase it all down. I find that all the time where someone says something politically. I'm like, I don't think that's true, but I'm not going to spend the next eight hours trying to figure out if it is or not. 
Right? I just don't have the energy. I don't have the time. But Christian, you must make the time and energy to think through the things that divide the body of Christ so that you know how you can love your neighbor. And you're not operating in ignorance. You're not operating just out of your tradition. You've studied it out. You've thought it out. You've, you're, you're willing to engage it. Not so we can have wranglings about opinions, but so that we can love one another. So man up and do the work. Turn off Netflix. Put down your silly books or magazines. And once in a while, pick up something serious. Pick up the Word of God. Pick up a work around the Word of God so you can grow in grace. And you can be a better faithful believer and co-believer, brother and sister in Christ, because it takes study to be convinced in your own mind faithfully. Principally the Word of God, but beyond that. So, it takes work. And work takes sacrifice. And sacrifice looks to us, most of the time, like turning off the TV. Picking up a book. It can be that that simple. Um, And be convicted. Because we waste enormous amounts of time. And God calls us here to work. So let's work together and rejoice, and so we can be fully convinced each in our own mind. So this is a call on one hand to mature discernment. You have to study and work and talk and pray to come to the point of mature discernment when it comes to spiritual things and things beyond. It's all spiritual. It's this world God's given us and put us in. It's not all spiritual in the same way. And that takes discernment as well. You have to study. You have to work. You have to pray, Christian. So get busy after those things. Don't be so distracted by worldly foolishness. Focus in on serving the Lord well and being able to be fully convinced in your own mind and therefore being a mature and discerning Christian. It also takes a faithful disposition toward God and toward each other, which is where we end, or at least the third point. Giving thanks to God. So as we get into these issues of Christian fellowship, the struggles and wrangling in Christian fellowship, how problems and divisions occur. Um, we really look here, I think, right in and through the thing to see what's the basis on which, and how do we proceed so that we keep together the unity of the church in the bond of peace and love and truth. And we see that really for us in verse 6. The one who observes the day, okay, so if someone has a holy day, they observe it. They keep it. They don't do their work. They eat a certain way. They're, they spend it in prayer. Take a side note back. Um, now, I'll, t- I'll talk more about this w- with Sabbath next week, but there are plenty of examples of people, I think I heard John MacArthur talk about this, where his, the Sabbath routine or the Lord's Day routine for him was like, sit on the couch and do nothing. <laughs> Stare at the wall and think Baptist thoughts or something. Um, and don't, certainly don't ride your bike or play games or do anything fun. Right, that's kind of the tradition as far as the Lord's Day that He was raised in. That's a tough one. Uh, I don't like it. Uh, I think the Lord's Day should be a day of joy and of fellowship and of fun, not a day where we just get to do all our own stuff and what we want to do, but where we focus in on the fellowship and the worship and the the glorious things we have in Christ and maximize that, make the day a joy, not a drag. Uh, But sometimes it goes that way too, I suppose. But the the thing I think that Paul gives us here is the thankfulness in our heart, no matter what we do, right? So back to verse 6 here. The one who observes the day, even if he observes it sitting on the couch thinking baptistic thoughts and so on, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. So the one who eats the meat and someone else won't eat, they eat that meat in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, 
and gives thanks to God. Notice what they have in common? They want to honor the Lord in what they're doing, eating or drinking, observing a day, not observing a day, and they do it with thanksgiving. Their hearts are full of thanks to God. Now, if we're approaching issues that divide Christians, and again, not issues of sin, but issues that are indifferent, issues that we need to be able to have freedom to do things, we'll find that what makes it work is if we're all trying to honor the Lord, we want to eat and drink or not eat and not drink, we want to keep the days or not keep the days, all in honor of the Lord, and with hearts full of thanksgiving. If we're thankful to the Lord, and we're seeking to please Him and honor Him, it'll go a long way in making sure we don't divide the body, or make other people stumble, or have problems that way within the body. If we're seeking to honor the Lord, and we're aware of what's going on around us, and we have thanks in our hearts. So the distinguishing mark here, of the people of God, is thankfulness. Christian, how often are you thankful? How much time during the day do you sit there and go, God, just I want to thank you. I want to sit here and think through some of the things in my life that you've given and just thank you. One of my most, uh, although it's irritating, but I like it a lot, was just praying with a three-year-old over there where I start to say thanks for this and thanks for that, and she just goes on running um, with all the things she's thankful for, which, again, is kind of irritating, but it's also kind of wonderful to have her express her thanks to God. We just have to wait around for a while until she's done, and then, you start, and then she starts again, all that kind of stuff, right? But it's, uh, it's, it's a little heart that wants to give thanks because she sees the bigger heart of her papa or her mommy also giving thanks, and she wants to join in that thanksgiving. What a glorious thing to be thankful to the Lord. Purposely thankful. Say, God, I'm just amazed at the good things you've put into my life, starting with you yourself and all the blessings that you give. A distinguishing mark of a Christian is their thankfulness to God. And, of course, as we read elsewhere, their love to each other, which is what we're dealing with here. Thankfulness to God is key to loving one another. If we want to honor the Lord and please Him, and we're thankful with what He's given and what we're going to, what, with what we're going to partake, then we're not going to cause each other to stumble. We're not going to live in an unloving manner one to another because we're rejoicing in the Lord and being thankful for what He has given. So in food and drink, be thankful. I was just reading a little bio of a local pastor here I'm trying to get to know, and he described himself as a foodie. Well, I'm a foodie. I eat it. Uh, beyond that, I'm not, you know. Uh, uh, Fred, he says, the way I deal with food is I put it in my mouth. If it tastes good, I chew and swallow it. <laughs> that's, that's kind of it, right? Um, other people maybe want different things out of their food or have different concerns. All right. But let the one who eats the box of mac and cheese or the one who eats the Vienna sausage or whatever else give thanks for those things. And God will nourish. God gives the blessing of it. And the person who has to have their foo-foo and whatever and all that, give thanks for that. We can give thanks together and eat different things. Eat and drink different things. And that's important for us to be able to give that. And, and then as, we'll move, as we move into this text later on, how we give those freedoms up. We can still do it with thanksgiving, and we can still do it to honor the Lord, but if it causes the brother to stumble, we need to readjust what we're doing. We'll get to that and as, far as, as far as the life and the body. But giving thanks is so important. Sometimes we say grace before a meal. 
well, hopefully, you know, more often than not, in saying grace, that phrase, say grace, I take to mean give thanks, uh, in the kind of Latin of, of grace being thanks. But anyway, so we say grace means we give thanks for the meal, for the abundance of God, who, as Scripture says, opens his hand, and a beast and the men of the earth are fed. He closes his hand, and they have no food. So as we give thanks for all of these things, we give thanks for our food and our drink, which is an issue of stumbling. But if we can give thanks and honor the Lord in it, it's less of an issue of stumbling as we move forward. What about holy days or every day? Right? Different days of the week, either for fasting or on the calendar, Jewish calendar, or, <coughs> or something else. Other calendars that might have us take days off or hold them as separate or holy. Because remember, the, the basic meaning of holy is set apart. So, like, as we read the Sabbath commandment this morning, it ends what? The Lord separated the seventh day and hallowed it. I'm trying to remember the words. Uh, but he hallowed the day. He made it holy. He set it apart. Okay? And the, the reason given, at least in Exodus, is because this is how God created everything. He created in six days and rested the seventh. Therefore, he set it apart. And as you get to Deuteronomy, it's like, oh, well, we were redeemed out of Egypt. Therefore, keep the Sabbath day. Right, so there's a moving target as it goes, but the day is still set aside. It's still a day that's a special day. It's, it's set aside from the others. The others are your days. Go work. Do all your stuff. But the Sabbath is this holy day. So in keeping with holy days, and again, I'll deal with Sabbath, Lord willing, next week, but um, maybe you can think of just on the Christian calendar. If I go to Google calendars and I just put on my normal calendar, just like the regular holidays, it gives me all sorts of junk I don't want. Um, all sorts of junk. I'm like, what is this? What is this? Day? I don't know. So I turn it off. I'm interested in Juneteenth and whatever else. But uh, I put on the Christian ones and I get like a bunch of stuff there too. I don't know. I'm like, I don't know these holidays either. Um, but I guess there are a bunch of them. You know, and then certainly they proliferated throughout the Middle Ages. Uh, holy days. Days of the, where you're not going to work. It's a celebration day. It's a feast day. And they're all over the place, all over the calendar. Uh, from saints' days to whatever else. So we have holy days, and we have those who take every day the same. Every day is holy. Well, that's interesting, right? Every day is the day to the Lord. Every day is, is, is a day to serve the Lord and give ourselves to Him and receive grace from Him because He's so good. That's true, isn't it? So we can love all that. We can kind of operate in such a way where certain people want to have certain days special. We can think of Christmas or other things that are kind of simple, or Easter on the Christian calendar. Or even Christians who want to like honor something like Juneteenth or whatever else. Any other holiday that's not really a Christian holiday, but something they want to commemorate, they're free to do it. Right? But it's not an obligation on everybody. There's a freedom we have to participate or not participate in that. And to give thanks. To give thanks, not only for the days, but for the people that we get to share them with. We should be amazed, Christian, at what our God is doing, at the salvation he's wrought. And in such a way that he's not called us all to walk exactly in the walk step. Right? We're all thinking exactly the same, moving exactly the same. It's not like that. Right? God calls us individually. He calls our families. Our families all have different complexions and characters and so on. Right? Each of us do as well. Our Savior is the same. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But he calls all varieties of men and women and children into that. And we need to learn to live in that diversity, holy and faithful diversity, letting people have freedom to do what they want to do within the law of God, or not do what they don't want to do within the law of God, but in all of it, giving thanks, being amazed at God, being thankful to God, rejoicing in our freedom we have in Christ Jesus. So I ask you again as we close up, what is the greatest Christian virtue? What is the greatest 
character quality of a Christian, it is love. Christian, it is love. The Lord, in His love, is able to make each of His slaves stand. The ones that make you nervous and the ones that don't make you nervous, your very self. The Lord is able to make you stand. Regardless of what other Christians think of you, the Lord is able to make you stand. He is able. And we stand or fall based upon His judgment, not upon the judgment one of another. We have freedom, Christian, under God's law to pursue what we want. Or not pursue what we don't want. We have freedom. But that freedom is given to us, and we'll do this more and more, we'll get more text coming on this, in order to love one another. To serve the Lord with thankfulness and joy, and to love one another to the building up of the church, of the people of God. So, as we explore these freedoms and rejoice in them and figure out how to, how to use them together, it is a lifelong process. You don't just get this thing figured out. I figured it out Tuesday and we're good now. It doesn't work that way. We've got to continually struggle with these things and be convinced in our own minds. Do the work. Do the studying. Do the praying that God calls you to do in order to be a faithful Christian brother or sister to the congregation right around you, to your very own family, and of course as our witness to the world as well, that Christ is the Savior of the world. There is no other And he saves us out of bondage into freedom. The freedom of the sons of God. What an amazing Savior. What an amazing salvation. All for free. All yours. He just demands that as you turn around that you belong to him. He's given himself to you in Christ Jesus. You belong to him. And of course as we come to the table that's exactly what we come to. He's given himself for us, and he demands that we give ourselves to him. And we say, command what thou wilt, God, and grant what thou commandest. Amen.